Most online worlds are fleeting. They vanish in a whiff of server connection error flavoured smoke on an otherwise insignificant day some two, three, maybe five years after the world magically sprang to life. But Second Life has a curious staying power. It stopped popping up in the headlines a long time ago. You've probably only seen it mentioned once, twice, a year for the past five years. And in the world itself, it's hardly the hotbed of activity that it was in its heyday. There are maybe 500,000 people actively playing, down from 21 million registered players at its peak. And it's been steady in the hundreds of thousands for years. But Second Life remains an enchanted place. Richard Moss here. Today on Ludophilia, we're going to learn a little about how Second Life changed two people's lives. You're about to hear from one of them, graphic designer and university lecturer Elif Aita, better known in Second Life as Alpha. Back then, I mean, I wasn't a player. Back then was around 2007. She decided to give Second Life a try to see if she could use it to implement this unorthodox art education system from the 1960s. It was called Ground Course. She was looking into it as part of her PhD research. Now, there were lots of universities creating virtual campuses at this time. Those campuses nowadays are basically ghost towns. But even then, it was pretty clear to anyone who spent much time in the virtual world that it wasn't going to transform formal education. Not in that form, anyway. But it was great as a playground. I was this adult person, and I hadn't played probably since I was a child. But I still got this... I sort of became very intrigued. And, and I find that very hard to explain. Because, you know, I sort of was getting clues. Uh, but, you know, nothing that I can really pinpoint. But then what happened, uh, what was the, the big significant change for me um, when I really became a player in Second Life was when I hooked up with this guy whom I actually knew, knew from real life, uh, an Austrian artist, he's called Max Moswitzer in real life, and in Second Life he, his avatar is called Hardware Hacker Ho. And I heard through common acquaintances that Max was in Second Life and he was having a really great time in Second Life. So I contacted him in Second Life and we hooked up. And through him, I then met Wolfi and I started to play with them. And they were really playing. So, you know, it was, uh, you know, the, these two 40-something-year-old adult uh, artists had sort of shed all this being adult and being serious and being artists and what have you and they uh, and they were playing with toys with uh, helicopters with planes when i first hooked up with them they were uh, busy uh, setting up a metro system on this simulator that they owned which also became my home in second life and i very quickly got into it but i really owe it to them they they were the ones who retaught me how to play and, you know, at the time, I mean, I'm quite old. I'm 62 years old now. So this would 
be like what I was like 53, 54 years old back then. And that's how it started. And we played continuously. I mean, you know, I forgot about the PhD. I forgot about everything, really. I mean, I did the PhD afterwards, but, uh, you know, for a long time, I was so immersed in, in just playing and being a child. You know, I, I, I was in Second Life probably six, seven hours a day, every day at least, including weekends. And uh, we were playing these very, very, very elaborate uh, children's games for adults. We're focusing this story on one of those games in particular. Here's Peter Schamuller, also known as Wuffi or Wolfgang Heinex, describing how it started. Well, first um, I met uh, Max Moswitzer. Uh, who was a lecturer at the University of uh, Applied Arts in Vienna. And um, he was like doing this seminar about metaverse. And so we started in Second Life and we all had to do something about that. So it was basically a a, a class. And then I was thinking about, you know, how can I contribute to the greater better of uh, second, Second Life? And we found out that uh, many of the avatars that are roaming the grid are quite lost. So we were trying to give them uh, like, a, like things to, to do or things that they could do. And so um, I thought about, yeah, let's just try this. And uh, we were like into flying with helicopters. And so I put one and two together. And so we wound up building an airport and then we had this rescue station. They began doing search and rescue operations in Second Life, which is kind of absurd because avatars never need rescuing. It's not like a video game. You don't have to worry about hit points or leveling up. If an avatar is in need, they will log off or they will teleport somewhere. I mean, you know, if they're being attacked by someone or, you know, I mean, they're being griefed or they get stuck somewhere or, you know, they're in need, uh, they can just teleport or they can log off. Alpha soon joined Wuffi and Max Moswitz's multiple avatars in the search and rescue operations. They based their operations out of a place called Klein. They had this huge airfield. They had all these uh, jets, rescue jets, Equipped with stretchers and paramedic uh, outfits and, um, you know, uh, ropes and, I mean, anything you can possibly imagine that a rescue, search and rescue um, plane would have, you know, if it was looking for somebody in the wilderness or something like that. They had helicopters, they had submarines, they had uh, boats, uh, they had a control uh, room where there would be these avatars, uh, who were, again, uh, mostly Max's avatars, who would sit there and listen to incoming signals, which were, of course, sent by us. Uh, so we were sending signals to our other avatars about, you know, uh, oh, there's a horrible disaster uh, at such and such a sim, and, you know, please go there. The chatter on these search and rescue airwaves was in military speak. That came from Peter's background. He was in the Austrian army in the 1990s. He quit before joining Second Life and at the time was working as a media consultant. So, you know, anyway, so there would be this emergency call and then, you know, everybody would take off. So five planes and three helicopters would take off, all manned by two people. 
Unfortunately, I could never be part of the, the the actual rescue missions because I'm terrible at flying things in Second Life or even driving a car. I mean, for some reason, it's completely beyond me. I mean, I I can't do it. So Peter and Max led the rescue missions while she worked on the ground. You know, I was nurse, uh, doctors, nurses, paramedics. So, you know, I would wait for the um, incoming uh, victims or whatever you want to call them. Um, I would man the boards. And, of course, I was the fashion designer because, you know, I was designing all of the search and rescue uniforms. Elif ran a fashion store right next to the airfield. It was a pretty happening place. There were people around at all hours, arriving from near or far away. They wanted to check out her, her garments. And in case it wasn't clear at this point, fashion is kind of a big deal in Second Life. The best designers can actually make enough money to quit their real-life jobs and you know, feed the human controlling the avatar. It's less common now, but since the early days of Second Life, there have been residents whose full-time real-life jobs are creating clothes or buildings or other things that other players go and buy. And this was possible because money in the game can be transferred back to real dollars. There was chatter for years about the Linden dollar virtual currency becoming a big thing, kind of like how Bitcoin gets talked about now. But like Second Life itself, it never met its potential. So her store was a hot, well-known place, but that didn't stop the boys from pulling it into their play. So then Wolfie Peter would come stomping over and, and he would say, well, Alpha, you know, we are awaiting an invasion uh, of enemy troops uh, from Finster Ahorn, which is the sim next door. So we need to set up barricades here and, um, and I'm going to uh, put all of these uh, mines, landmines, I'm going to embed them into your store because when these invaders come in, you are our first line of defense because your store is right on the border of Finster Ahorn, so, you know, they're going to be coming here first. So he would put down all of these mines all over the store, which was, you know, very well visited by uh, other avatars who would then be stepping on them and, you know, these things would be exploding left and right and I would have to sit, stand there and explain to people. And, and you know, I like that's the part of being playing. Uh, is that, you know, I wouldn't, if you, you have a customer coming to the store and they step on a landmine, it explodes and they're like, what the hell is going on here? And then you don't answer to them like, well, you know, we are playing this game here. It's called Search and Rescue Operations of Second Life. You don't say that. You, you say, well, uh, we had to put down these landmines because there's this threat of attack from the neighboring sim. And this store is the first line of defense. And that's why we have all of these mines here. Sorry for the inconvenience, but I'm afraid, you know, th these are bad times. The great thing is that the customer, who is also a Second Life resident, and, and if they know to find my store and come to it, presumably they are long-time residents, which would mean that they are players, just like we are, except they're playing a different game, would completely understand and would say, oh, I, oh, I, that's really terrible. Oh, my, when are you expecting the invasion? And, well, we don't know. I mean, it could happen at any moment. I mean, it could happen right now. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Yes, I'll, you know, I'll try to be careful. Um, so, you know, they would get into the game as well. In, uh, into this whole scenario, this fictive scenario of an imminent invasion from Finster Ahorn. 
we had a great time. I mean, we we had a blast, which is why I was there seven hours a day. I mean, you can't beat it. There's nothing that is that much fun happening around you in real life when you're, a, you know, 55, 50, 56 year old woman uh, who is meant to be serious and you know teach people, and so you can see where the attraction is. It's the most fun that I think I've ever had. I'm almost going to say in my life. Except, of course, I can't remember my, what it was like when I was a child. I mean, I may have had a really great time playing when I was a child. I don't remember that very well anymore. Peter, for his part, has similarly fond memories. He is talking about it was really absurd to to roam the grid and uh, to find other avatars that are just stuck in the middle of the ocean. And you fast rope some dudes down there and they asked him, hey, are, are you all right? And uh, then there was like really strange conversations, you know, like, uh, yeah, uh, no, I'm, I'm not good. And they were talking about their real life, what they like about it and what they don't. And we got to know people and people just dropped by and were there you know so we kind of gave them a job and uh, we got to got to know lots of lots of people and since we were flying really every day people recognized us we had people building our helicopters like branding it with the search and rescue logo yeah this was uh, kind of kind of funny well the group was quite huge it was about 300 people we had like uh, builders who built uh, built helicopters and planes. So we got 30 active people, like really active, who were there every day. And the rest were just dropping by. Peter told me the airport actually got an Ars Electronica prize for cyber art. Now, if you don't know about Ars Electronica, it's an Austrian festival and museum of the future. It's a pretty cool place. But it turns out not everyone was so enamored with the search and rescue operation. We had really big problems with neighbors because there were planes flying in and in and out and it was like, you know, people said, what's that all about and we don't want it. We got, uh, we got rewarded for that uh, when planes crashed onto resident uh, plots. Removing the debris is actually a fairly trivial operation. It's just a couple of clicks. But it still annoyed some people, and talking to them didn't always fix the problem. One day, out of the blue, Peter's avatar got banned from Second Life. So I was crashing an experimental chat at the sim, and the sim owner was quite new to Second Life, and he reported me for like, uh, I don't know, and then from one day to the other, my avatar got banned, but I was calling Linden Labs and then they said, yeah, okay, you know, it was the 50th time that somebody reported you, we really have to do something about it. And then they uh, banned me, but they kept the airport. So it was made Lindenland. It was in Klein. And for me, this was a proper date to just quit it because I wasn't in Second Life that, that much that it would take to keep the, keep the operations. I kind of lost interest in it because it cost, us, cost a lot of money to, to run a sim and stuff. And uh, then, I, then I found out that this was the day where I quit Second Life Search and Rescue.
The search and rescue operation ended with Peter's departure. They didn't really have the heart to start again without him. And after three or four years, it had had a good run anyway. There are these magic times, and then they're over. Had Peter not been banned from Second Life, I suspect that we would have grown tired of it at some point, and it would have kind of fallen apart. Mox is still playing like crazy. He's playing uh, EVE Online. He's no longer in Second Life, but he's playing EVE Online, which he has tried uh, to get us all involved in, but it seems to be a very complicated game. So, I mean, I, I've never even attempted it. Peter says he still plays Second Life occasionally with a, a new avatar, but he's not as active as he used to be. And Elif plays much less now as well, but she continues to use Second Life as a creative, playful outlet for her art and design. She likes to create spaces that look kind of like sprawling art installations. They're play spaces designed specially for others to, to come along and take photos or roleplay in or to make their own stories. And she actually has five avatars now. All of them work as fashion designers. They've co-owned a shop for the past several years. They are completely discrete individuals, completely different personalities. Uh, one guy, uh, one uh, furry, uh, and uh, three women. One of them is me. Uh, all of them are me. I mean, they are all my alt uh, avatars. So, you know, it's like I'm playing with five dolls, so to speak. Um, you know how children will just, you know, have a whole bunch of dolls and they will be all those dolls as they play. So, um, so you know, that, that play, that game is still ongoing. I still play that. I still have that sh store and... Um, uh, and it, I sell stuff, you know, I mean, I also make money out of it. But that that's not the main objective. The main objective is to uh, have this... Uh, uh, you know, I mean, I log in uh, different personalities at the same time because I have more than one computer at home. So they also play with each other. So I'm playing all of them. As a, a real-life designer as well, is is it very liberating for you to be able to play in that way? Yes, obviously, sure. But you see, uh, the, the, this whole idea of uh, creating five... I mean, I didn't say five, you know, that, that was not a decision I made. I created one, then I, another, and then another, and then another, and then somehow I stopped at five. I mean, it could have gone on. Um, actually, it comes from real life, because... Uh, you know, I've been teaching, I've been an academician for, you know, about 20 years now, but before that, I was an art director. I, I worked in the advertising sector, and I did that for um, about 20 years, well, 15 years or something like that. And the thing with uh, art directors, with graphic designers who work as art directors, especially in advertising, but across the board, really, um, even in editorial design, is that uh, you can't really have a personal style. Your style changes from product to product or from client to client. You have to fit the corporate identity of your client and the context of the product that they're selling. It wouldn't do to apply the loud colors and layouts of a gossip magazine to, say, a funeral home brochure to give a kind of extreme example. But in Second Life, Ellipse free to create however she sees fit and not just to hone one personal style, 
but rather five for five completely different personalities. She thinks this opportunity for creative play that Second Life offers is unparalleled, and she just can't see the virtual world disappearing anytime soon through lack of players for exactly this reason. Nor does she plan to leave. And you know, I don't care how unfashionable Second Life is or whatever, you know, I really, honestly, I couldn't care less. In fact, I'm glad it's unfashionable because, you know, <clears throat> that makes it better. <laughs> it, well, you know, it does. I mean, it gets rid of the riffraff and then the only people who actually stay are the ones who are like me who are players and who uh, get a huge kick out of uh, being children and, you know, things like that. So I think the population of Second Life today is is much, much, much nicer than the population of Second Life ten years ago, uh, or eight years ago, when I jo first joined. Um, so no, I think I, I, I'm here for the duration, as they say. There's also a tremendous amount of satisfaction uh, from a creative standpoint because, you know, as you are making the stuff, you are having a whale of a time, you know, playing. Her island, which was designed through playing for people to play in, was visited by tens of thousands of people. They took photographs and they played and they made videos and, and they send me those links and and you know it's hugely gratifying to see how people take what you make and then build their own stories on it and their own tales and their own uh, plays uh, or the same with the clothes you know they buy the clothes then they play with those clothes they combine them with other clothes uh they use them as parts of narratives uh they photograph them so uh and that's a satisfaction that i don't think you really get all too easily when you do things in real life. It's also a satisfaction that helped Peter. He credits Second Life with driving him to be a happier, healthier person. For instance, he wanted to look like his avatar, so he started playing sports again, because he wanted to get thinner and stronger to look like it. And he returned to the army, where he now works in public relations. Many, many things happened when I started Second Life. Maybe the, the military organization of search and rescue made me reconsider, maybe I should re rejoin the, the army. My, my life, is, life is better now. I was working as a media consultant. I didn't really see the point of, of doing, doing it. So I could really try things in Second Life and then uh, say, okay, this I want to get to my to my real real life, so I could really check out this. Okay, no, I don't want that, but this I want in my real real life. And so the simulation made my real life better. For Elif, it's relearning how to play that made her life better. It's changed my life, and I am so glad it happened. Uh, and, uh, I mean, sadly, you know, nowadays we hardly hang out anymore uh, because Max and Peter, I mean, the whole context was playing together and once that stopped, then, uh, you know, we kind of drifted apart. Uh, but um, I, I'm, I will be eternally grateful to those guys for uh, re-teaching teaching me to, to play again. 
and uh, and I know that uh, most adults don't do it. I mean, I, I, you know, I was very, very, very lucky uh, that I encountered these two guys who had rediscovered it by themselves or together, together, I would think, um, or maybe by themselves. And almost everybody that I know in Second Life is a player. And uh, But outside of Second Life, the people I know outside of Second Life, in real life, um, and obviously, you know, I, at this age, I mean, I've had the opportunity to meet thousands of people in my lifetime. And, uh, and I can't think of a single person who is a, as an adult and who knows how to play. I mean, they know games. That's different. They play games. You know, sports, competitive things. But not play for play's sake. Not play in the free, liberated kind of way that children play. You know, that more pure kind of play that she can only find in her digital life. Where she can build her playful monuments and her quirky clothes. And she never has to worry about needing to be a serious, responsible adult. Where she can just be an avatar and have fun. That was Ludophilia Episode 3, Avatars in Need. Ludophilia is produced by me, Richard Moss. Music this week is by Revolution Void, Chris Sabrisky, and Kai Engel, with a couple of bits by me. If you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast platform is called. Also leave a review, it all helps. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash ludophilia or via the donate button on the website ludophilia.net. Even a contribution of a single dollar can help make the show better. It encourages me to keep going and it helps cover the costs of making each and every episode. You can follow the show on Twitter at Ludophilia. You can also tweet me at MossRC. I'll let Revolution Void's song Scattered Knowledge take you out. See ya.